If the church is the body of Christ through the Eucharist, which joins us to that body, then tradition is the memory which inheres in the mind of Christ. It is through tradition that we acquire continuity from generation to generation. It is through tradition that the ages of ages in which God is glorified acquire both their distinctive character and their unifying principle. Do this in memory of me, or do this as my memorial, Jesus says at the institution of the Eucharist. God both remembers us, and we remember God in Christ through that Eucharist, according to the norms established in the tradition and the life of the Church. Let's not forget that it is in the Eucharist and the liturgical pattern it gives birth to that we have such a thing as the church calendar. It is in the Eucharist that we have such a thing as the commemoration of saints. To commemorate saints is to recall those who have been joined to the body of Christ and transfigured into glory by union with that body. Before getting into the main uh, content of this video, which is the first of a prescripted series, I want to say that if you enjoy this content, if you want to help facilitate my continued production of it, please consider becoming a patron. It really is essential and necessary uh, if I'm to continue making this content, and I want to thank everybody who has become a patron. It is the only thing which has actually allowed me to continue producing uh, this stuff on a regular basis. At the highest level of patronage, which is the elite level or level three, it guarantees at least one hour per month of one-on-one -on -one discussion, tutoring, whatever you would like to call it, and a number of people have said that that's been very helpful. But just anyone who watches these videos and participates in the discussion, I really do appreciate it a great deal. Uh, there is also some exclusive content provided with the uh, a paid uh, with each level of patronage. More to say on that, um, I think, relatively soon. Uh, but with that said, let's say a prayer, and then we'll get into the main subject. Illumine our hearts, O Master who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down our carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thou holy good and life creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Basil the Great and a number of other fathers mention the existence of what they call an unwritten tradition from the apostles. And when they discuss this, it is usually discussed as a body of memory and corporate identity centered on the church's liturgical life and specific liturgical acts in which tradition acquires its distinct character as tradition. We might consider the Bible as the written word of God. Basil the Great and a number of other patristic writers refer to it as the word of God. That's no problem and it's true. Uh, and Maximus compares the Bible to the incarnation itself. The incarnation, Jesus joins himself with humanity and in the Bible, the Word of God, all of God's creative activities, which manifest his character as God, are textualized in a symbolic form. It is the written incarnation as the hypostatic logos of God, the whole counsel of God that is his plan, his archetype, both in space and time, for the glorious creation. That whole counsel is set forth for his children. The sacred liturgy and the worshiping life of the church 
is the concrete focal point of the Holy Spirit's enduring presence in the church. The prophetic promises of the return of divine glory to Zion, as prophesied in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and many other places. These prophetic promises are fulfilled when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, calling it the day of Israel's visitation, a term used to refer to the coming of God to meet his people and inspect them, either to blessing or to curse. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he enters into the temple, overturns the tables of the temple, and then sets a new table. And that is the table in the upper room. Remember, inward is upward in the temple and the tabernacle. So the upper room is a symbol of God's heavenly dwelling. So when Jesus sets the table and places on it the body and blood uh, of his own passionate and resurrected life, that fulfills the promise of God's enduring presence in Zion where God overshadows not only Israel, but also the nations of the world, as is described in Isaiah 24, 25, and elsewhere. It is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete of Jesus, who is sent into the church to make manifest the life of the incarnate Son, who dwells in the Father. The Son is never, whether in the life of God or in the life of the world, made known except through the Spirit of God. And the Eucharist, together with the liturgical life, it unifies is the preeminent embodiment of that pneumatically constituted presence of the Son. As manna and scripture together were stored in the Ark of the Covenant, so also the Gospel, signifying the written Word of God and thus the entire Bible, and the Eucharist is set before the Lord on the altar of the liturgy of the New Covenant. Some have described tradition as the life of the Holy Spirit in the Church. Now, this is true, but in my opinion, it is too abstract to function as a concise definition of tradition. The word tradition in English comes from the Latin word trado and tradare. These are two of the principal parts. And this word means to hand on or to transmit. The Greek word paradosis, which the English New Testament translates as tradition, has the same etymology. That is, it pertains to handing on or transmitting a particular thing. To think of tradition as something which is handed on gives it a concreteness which is not captured by merely describing it as the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. To call it the life of the Holy Spirit in the church is true, but it fails to ground the Spirit's witness in the specifical historical earthness of the church through the ages. The Spirit does not merely live and bear witness to each Christian or to each body of Christians independently, but rather he carries out his witness in a specific way through an historical process which one can point to and say, there it is. This is its transmission. The preservation and handing on of the tradition is linked, of course, to the apostolic office of bishop. And the bishop has his priestly calling through a chain of transmission proceeding forth from the mouth of Jesus the Messiah on his apostles. The consecration of a new bishop is Trinitarian as it requires three bishops to lay their hands on the one who is being consecrated, and it is also uh, preeminently liturgical. It enables the person in question to celebrate the divine liturgy and thus manifest the life of the church in the world. 
both in connection with heaven from which it descends and in connection with the apostolic church of generations past. Jesus in John 10.36 declares that the Father consecrated him and sent him into the world. The language of consecration is unambiguous in its connection to the priesthood, and it is exactly harmonious with John's repeated focus on the identity of Jesus as the great high priest. Think, for example, of John 17, the high priestly prayer, or in the tomb after Jesus is raised from the dead, where you have two angels on either side of Jesus' burial stone, matching the two cherubim on either side of the throne of God in the tabernacle in the temple. This very language, moreover, is used to describe the apostolic calling in John chapter 20, where Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Jesus says this as he puts the Spirit on the apostles. While some have speculated about the relationship of this event to Pentecost, I think the relationship is relatively clear. The Apostle Paul calls Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6 to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This does not seem to be the gift of the Spirit given to the whole church at Pentecost, but rather a specific calling to the hierarchical and priestly ministry. The pastoral letters are written as an instruction in exercising the ministry as the leaders of the church serving as the set of apostolic instructions in the matter before the apostolic age comes to its conclusion. I would argue that the tradition of Timothy and Titus serving as monarchical bishops, which I firmly hold to be an apostolic tradition, the arguments for a supposed equality of multiple presbyters are paper thin in my opinion, but this is not the time to argue that point. But the tradition of Timothy and Titus as monarchical bishops seems to me to best explain the context and the content of the pastorals. Paul instructs Timothy how to select worthy overseers, and that presumes that Timothy has the authority to make those choices in his locale. While the word overseer, or episkopos, will later become a technical term describing the office of monarchical bishop, that is not how it functions in the New Testament. Too often, I think, commentators assume that the terms elder, presbyteros, and overseer, episcopus, are equivalent in the sense that they were both names the early church used to describe a single office, so that they described the same office. But this is not the case. Elder is used against the background of the Hebrew Bible, where the word signifies those with authority over Israel. Numbers 11 to 12, which we'll discuss below, Moses puts the spirit on 70, which is the ancestor of the Sanhedrin, and they become the 70 elders, corresponding to the 70 who ascended and represented Israel when Moses sprinkles blood on them at the covenant of Sinai, Exodus 24. Now this word for elders is closely associated with the priesthood. Think, for example, of how the threefold hierarchy of Mount Sinai corresponds to the threefold uh, hierarchy of priesthood. You have the high priest at the top corresponding to Moses. Then you have the priesthood corresponding to the uh, uh, specific priestly families within the Levites. That's at the center of the mountain where the 70 elders have their meal with God. And then you have at the bottom the Levites who are the guardians of the sanctuary. 
The word overseer should likewise be understood not as the title for the same office as presbyteros, but not a title for an office at all. It rather describes the etymologically rooted significance of the person being identified by these times, these terms are that. That is, one who looks over, who oversees. Here the significance lies in Israel's liturgical cult. The lampstand in the holy place of the tabernacle and the temple is described as having cups like almond branches. And the word for almond literally means watcher. They were called watcher trees. The seven-branched menorah with cups like watchers overlooked the twelve loaves of the bread of the presence, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. The light which lit the menorah signifies the light of divine presence, watching over the people through Israel's priesthood. I might add to this that Clement makes this connection quite explicit in describing how the apostles instituted a succession in the churches which they established. We see the association of the almond branch specifically with the priesthood in Numbers 17, when those who contest the unique consecration of the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe are answered when the rod of Aaron blossoms and produced ripe almonds. Thereafter, the rod of Aaron dwells in the Holy of Holies, together with the manna and the Ten Commandments. In the holy place, the bread of the present corresponds to the manna, which was in the Holy of Holies, and the almond-branched menorah in the holy place corresponds to the blossoming rod of Aaron in the Holy of Holies. So the use of the word overseer, episkopos, which is later rendered bishop, to describe ministers of the church in the apostolic period is not a name for an office per se, but rather a literary allusion to the particular features of Israel's sanctuary and consecrated priesthood. You might think of uh, an analogy as the word president. Now the word president originally is utilized simply to refer to one who presides. That is, it refers to the function of a particular office. You call an individual a president because he is the one who presides. But now president has taken on the connotation specifying a specific and particular office. The office of the church, which the word episcopos and presbyteros does signify, is associated with priesthood and priestly character. So why not use the Greek word just translated, priest? Well, this is actually relatively simple. The temple in Jerusalem is still standing. The word for priest denotes not those ministers in the church who succeed priestly character in a new covenant context, but those priests who are, active, who are actually active in the old covenant temple. We're told in the book of Acts that a number of them became believers in Jesus and did not abandon their uh, work officiating in the old covenant sanctuary. Going on then in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, uh, 12 to 13, Paul refers to the deposit with which he was entrusted by Jesus as an apostle. And then he enjoins Timothy to follow his model, carefully guarding the deposit entrusted to him by Paul, and finally entrusting it to others in 2 Timothy 2 2. In 1.14, Paul draws the important theological connection, which is essential for a balanced understanding of tradition. 
calling Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to you through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Tradition is something which is very concrete in that it is an historically embodied reality handed down by the historical process and transmission of apostolic succession. Tradition is also something which only exists through the work of the Spirit. Even with an unbroken chain of transmission, the tradition would inevitably decay or become corrupted through the ages without the vivifying work of the Spirit of God animating the historically earthed body of Christ. And I think that it's in this light that we can actually understand the significance of chrismation. Now, chrismation is a sacrament which belongs to the service of baptism. Historically, baptism is something of a double sacrament because chrismation is actually part of baptism. But in both East and West, the Holy Chrism, and this is what's called confirmation in the West, but traditionally in both East and West, it is administered to everyone who is baptized, including infants. Um, in both East and West, the Holy Chrism has a specific relationship to the bishop, the monarchical bishop. In the West, it came to be that only monarchical bishops would actually administer the sacrament, even as priests were understood to be able to validly do so. In the East, priests would administer the sacrament, but the Holy Chrism had to be taken from a specially blessed uh, collection of chrism that came from the local bishop. And what this effectively does is it joins the layperson, not only to the body of Christ, but to the specifically and concretely earthed body of Christ, which is structured and governed by the Episcopal College. And that explains why the service of chrismation actually contains strong similarities to a kind of ordination. The laity is not the non-priesthood, it is rather the final order of the priesthood. It is that order of the priesthood which extends the grace received through the hierarchical priesthood and waters from them that, well, the whole creation. And to be chrismated means that you are integrated on the basis of baptism, not only into Christ, but into the specific manifestation and realization of the body of Christ in history, which is why, by chance, you it is a, a, a known practice to actually chrismate those who have apostatized in return. That shows we don't have exactly the same doctrine as is common in the West, where chrismation, uh, confirmation like baptism, is an indelible sacrament. Now, the content of this tradition, which Paul has referred to, is sustained in relationship to the Bible. Let me just read the whole passage here. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul describes scriptures which Timothy has known since his childhood, I don't actually believe that he's only referring to the Hebrew Bible. Timothy is a young man, and this epistle is written in the early to the mid-60s. Now, assume for the sake of argument that Timothy's childhood refers to him as he would was at 10 years old. By the time Paul writes the pastorals, Timothy would be in his early 40s. 
Now, given the view, which I've defended elsewhere, including on this channel, that the Gospel of Matthew was written in Hebrew in AD 30 and in Greek for the Church of the Nations in AD 33, and that the entire New Testament was written by AD 64, there is little reason to exclude the New Testament in principle from those texts which Timothy is called to interpret rightly. Now, whether or not you agree with me on the entirety of the New Testament, there can be no question that this is at least true for some of the New Testament books. This is obvious from 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, where the Gospel of Luke is quoted with the Torah as the Word of God. Moreover, as the apostolic age nears its close, one sees that Peter, as well, warns about the necessity of interpreting the books of the New Testament as Scripture correctly. And he's describing here the epistles of Paul, 2 Peter 3.16. Now, Paul elsewhere uses uh, obedience to his own writings as a command of the Lord, as a criterion of fellowship, and calls those to whom he is writing to read his letters liturgically. This indicates that he understands that what he is writing as the authority of scripture. In his instruction to interpret the scriptures correctly, Paul declares that the comprehensive inspiration of scripture is ordered to the making competent of one whom he calls the man of God. Now this phrase is not merely a way of describing any person who wishes to obey God. Rather in the Old Testament, it almost always refers to a prophet or someone who was authoritative in one way or another. The first reference is to Moses, Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. And many other references describe prophets as a man of God. To be a prophet is to be filled with the Spirit. So when Joel prophesies the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, quoted by Peter when he refers to the day of Pentecost, which is the extension of the apostolic gift of the Spirit to all nations. So we see the Spirit who was given to the apostles uh, operates in and through the apostles to incorporate this large body into their family. That's how I understand um, the relation of John 20 to Acts chapter 2. But Joel's prophecy is contextualized by its allusion to Numbers chapter 12. And Numbers 12 is part of a unit which includes the passage that I have placed here. Numbers 11, where Moses, pro uh, prayer, Moses prays that all of the Lord's people would be prophets, in that the Spirit would be put on them. So insofar as every baptized Christian is indwelt by the Spirit, all the Lord's people are prophets. We see in texts like this that consecration to the apostolic office through the special grace of the Spirit, that the prophetic calling subsisted in a distinctive way through the church's apostolically ordained episcopate, who were the heads of the churches. Now, let's remember that Moses says what he says here in Numbers 11 in the context of ordaining the 70 elders as one on whom the Spirit falls. So we see that there is an aspect of succession which is compatible with the language of prophet. And I think this dynamic sheds light on the Didache statement that a visiting prophet should be permitted to celebrate Eucharist as often as he pleases. And also, very tellingly, that the prophets are your high priests. I have the quotations here on the screen. The Gospel of John can be read fruitfully in light of the charges given to Timothy as successor of Paul in Ephesus. I will discuss the liturgical significance of these texts in more detail below. Now, if you hear strange sounds, that's my dog uh, who has woken up. For now, simply take note of the fact that was noted above, 
when Jesus puts the Spirit on the apostles in John chapter 20, he uses language of them which he used of himself specifically in relation to his consecration as the high priest. The apostles are the chief priests under that one high priest. The gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given here, is that of exercising the leadership of the church. In the traditional sacramental language of the church, this, in John 20, is where Jesus ordains the apostles with that grace of the priesthood, which is transmitted in apostolic succession. So, how does this relate to the preservation of tradition as it is linked inseparably to the interpretation of scripture? Now, I've argued elsewhere and in a, pre in a previous video that one of John's thematic undercurrents is, in fact, the completion of the biblical canon, which he intentionally organizes in a particular order and hands to the church in a canonical edition, such that our New Testament manuscripts seem to reflect not only a collection of a certain number of books, but a particular arrangement. Now, I won't repeat the arguments for a canonical edition here, and it's not fundamental to my argument, uh, but I do want to point out uh, one of what I take to be John's many uses of uh, double uh, meanings or fuller meanings. And John uses double meanings all the time. For, um, uh, for example, when he refers to being born again in John chapter 3, the word functions both to signify being born again and also being born from above. So when Jesus is with the apostles at the Last Supper, I think John uses his words both to signify their strict meaning, but also to signify this broader matrix of meaning about the completion of the biblical canon. And Jesus tells them, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I discussed this uh, in much more detail in a previous video on tradition in scripture. The Logos of God has revealed the entirety of his Father through the Incarnation, and the reality of the Incarnation is signified by the completion of the Book of God in its entirety, which textually makes manifest the whole counsel of God. Thus, it is no accident that John concludes Revelation with the famous warning to neither add nor subtract from the words of the book of this prophecy. Now this, of course, most directly references the text of the apocalypse itself, the book of Revelation, but contextual descriptions of the Lord as the God of the spirits of the prophets, and speaking to John of your brothers, the prophets, suggests a more expansive meaning for the words of the book of this prophecy is included. Likewise, Revelation 19, verse 10, declares that the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And John 14, verse 26, describes the coming of the Holy Spirit as the one who will bring to your, that is the apostles collectively, remembrance all I have said to you. 1526 describes the spirit of truth who comes upon the people of God as bearing witness to the Son. So John ends by categorizing his gospel as a textualized witness of Jesus the Messiah. I have it on the screen here, 21 verse 24. And the reference to the apostles as a whole receiving the remembrance of the teaching of Jesus through the witness-bearing spirit links them with the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 verse 10. And this, the words of the prophecy of this book, which make up the entire Bible. 
The prophets and the apostles together bear witness with the one spirit of prophecy of the crucified and resurrected Son, the incarnate Logos, and their spirit-breathed witness is textually embodied in the Holy Bible. The Bible is the concrete sign that the Son has made known all that I have heard from my Father. The Spirit's role is as the attestation of the Son, he who communicates what is in the Son. The Spirit of Truth comes to bear witness of Jesus and to bring to remembrance his teaching. Jesus is the way, the truth of the light and the life, and Jesus is the Spirit of Truth. This work of the Spirit is fulfilled in the Spirit's apostolic, uh, in the Spirit's authorship of the apostolic witness called the New Testament, but also in the faithful teaching of Scripture throughout the ages, according to the church's tradition. That is, he brings to memory, brings to mind what is signified in all that God has spoken in Jesus Christ, represented in the literal logos, the literal word, the Holy Scriptures. That's why in the prologue of John, we actually hear an allusion to the existence of Scripture. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and that fulfills what? The Torah came through Moses. The Spirit who carries out these works is the Spirit given to the apostles in John chapter 20 in their priestly consecration. This integrates thoroughly with what we have read in 2 Timothy, where the Spirit is the one who fills Timothy in his consecration to the apostolic office of bishop as successor to the Apostle Paul. Timothy is called to receive the apostolic deposit from the Apostle Paul and then to guard that deposit before ultimately entrusting it to others who are expected to do the same. The preservation and transmission of the deposit occurs by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Now note that this role of guarding the deposit looks back towards the function of the priests and the Levites in the Torah who guarded the sanctuary. A sanctuary with at its center had the engraved word of God. Now this tradition is never separated from scripture, but it always exists in relation to scripture and proceeds from it. Timothy's gift from the Spirit is that by which he is called the man of God. And it is that specific office through the Spirit that he is able to interpret Scripture for the church. 